It's Picture Lock on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. It's great to get back in the saddle for 2019, guys. I hope that you guys have been paying attention to the website. If so, you'll see that I did list my top five films of 2018 as seen on Let's Talk Live. So you can go to the website, check out the appearances portion of the site, and you'll be able to see my top five films if you want to get a jump on next week's show. But... Today, I'll talk with Tim Gordon, a.k.a. Film Gordon, founder of the Black Reel Awards, about our top five black films of 2018. Black directors had a stellar 2018 with blockbuster films grossing over $1.3 billion in the box office. Next week, I'll do my top 10 of 2018 with Dean Rogers of the Rogers Review. That's a bit more widespread, but this week, I want to go niche. If you're listening to the radio right now, make sure you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because 30 minutes isn't enough to handle all of this. And you're going to want to hear the full top five list of black films in 2018. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hi, this is Eliana Amiri Israel, the creator and director of Hermione Granger and the Portal Life Crisis, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and on the line with me to celebrate the top five films of 2018, I have none other than the Black Real Awards founder himself, Mr. Lakefront Film Festival, Tim Film Gordon. Tim, what's up, brother? Woo-woo! What's going on, bro? <laughs> How you doing, man? Nice to be here with you. Jimmy Chan! It's, it's great to be here with you, man. I know we just, we're, we're right smack in the middle between Christmas and New Year's. How how are your holidays going right now? Man, the holidays are quiet, and uh, just how I like them. I'm in the middle of what I call movie, movie break. Right now, we usually get a three-week break after the beginning of November, I mean the beginning of December to, to uh, early January so I'm enjoying a time without movies <laughs> man that's what's up um yes I, I gotta admit brother I have been so lazy as of now like you know my wife is actually home we're, we're chilling with the kids so in terms of movies if it ain't on Netflix Hulu or Amazon Prime I'm not catching it <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of kids movies. I can tell you all about Voltron right now. Miraculous, the tales of uh, Ladybug and Cat Noir. All kinds of kids stuff. But I can't tell you about any grown up movies. I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's up, man. Well, I wanted to do a top five black films of 2018 because. We had a very historic year. I, I believe at the at right now we have what four black directors that gross over one hundred million dollars in the box office this year. That is correct. So you know we 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 were doing our thing. Ava DuVernay, Ryan Coogler. Uh, who else am I missing? Uh, I want to say Antoine Fuqua with Equalizer Two. That's it. And I'm trying to remember. It's one more of these films. It's uh, uh, Creed 2, Creed 2. Two, yeah, Stevie K 
Yeah. There we yep. go. So so we had a really we had a really good year in film and filmmaking, honestly. And so, you know, as the founder of the DC Black Film Festival, you as the founder of the Black Real Awards, I thought it would be great if we could just kind of talk about our top five. Now, uh, of course, you know, uh, listeners, you might disagree and that's fine. Let us know on social media. But the top five films as it spoke to us, I know mine is more of a personal thing versus maybe what the box office did. But Tim and I, we're going to switch off as we always do, going from five down to the number one film. So, uh, Tim, you know, because I think you're actually, we haven't done a top five together. I'm going to start off um, my number five was Widows. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it now becomes about yours. This was directed by Steve McQueen, written by Jillian Friend and uh, Steve McQueen. And the film is set in contemporary Chicago amid a time of turmoil. Four women with nothing in common except a debt left behind by their dead husbands. Criminal activities take fate into their own hands and conspire to forge a future on their own terms. Tim, if, if memory serves me correctly... I believe we both saw this at the Middleburg Film Festival together. And the reason that this is my number five film, and and all these films that I'm listing, they stuck with me in some kind of way, whether it's cinematically, the characters, or, uh, you know, just resonating with me as a human. Uh, And so I think with Widows, what I was amazed by was, I think any other director would have taken the script and they would have made a heist film, but it would have been lackluster. And Steve McQueen in my book right now, he's one of the the top directors doing it. The way that uh, he uses his camera to tell a story, giving us uh, visuals that we haven't seen before, really helping to uh, highlight his character's character arc. And uh, I, I think he did an amazing job. And honestly, in this film, you know, Viola Davis, we know she's going to bring her A-game, but it was an ensemble film. I think every character, every cast member um, did just an amazing job. And you see an actual character arc from the beginning of the film to the end where these characters have actually changed. I said it in my review before. I think Elizabeth Debicki, um, who plays Alice, she has the biggest character arc Going from, you know, the the housewife that's that's getting beat to, you know, at the end, she's just a, a gangster. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, no, that was my number five. I Honestly, it's it's a heist film that I could watch again. Obviously, it, you know, for folks that are listening there, there's a nice little gotcha gotcha in there. Um, and so once you've seen it once, you can watch it again to see, like, catch anything that you may have missed. And that's what I really loved about it. There's one scene in particular that has stuck with me and is going to stick with me. And it's just how he has two stories being told at once. It's a story of, uh, you know, a politician who uh, is in the ghetto and he takes uh, it's a one take shot where they just get in the car, ride around 
over to where Jack Mulligan, who's played by Colin Farrell, uh, where he lives, and it's like a nicer part of Chicago and everything. But within that, like the conversation that's going on in the car, but then also when you think about it, how just a few blocks away, you know, it, it looks horrible in Chicago. And then, you know, over where Jack Mulligan lives, uh, it looks like the suburbs that you want you and your family to be in. I just thought it was handled excellently. And I'm going to be quiet. Tim, did you have any thoughts on Widows? Well, I will start by saying that 2018 such a historic year, man, that any other year we'd be doing top five lists, we'd be sharing similar movies, and we still may share similar movies. Widows did not make my top five list, but that's not saying that the movie wasn't good. It was just an embarrassment of riches that we had at the box office this year, and I agree with you about Widows. I thought that, uh, you know, Steve McQueen's handling of that material, absolutely fantastic, and the scene you just described, which you left out, the key part is that the scene happened with the camera being outside the car as we ride through these neighborhoods and the conversations happening that we don't see the actor, but we see the neighborhood, and it's, it's a, an amazing shot that he uses in order to, to do that, and that's probably the signature shot for me in that film, but uh-huh. great performance by Viola Davis. Uh, Liam Neeson, as well as Daniel Kaluuya, Brian Tyree Henry, and of course, all the ladies, you know, Michelle Rodriguez, Cynthia Erivo, uh, uh, Mr. Vicky, um, everybody brought their A-game to that, and Steve McQueen, man, bona fide director, man, that brother is a, is a true auteur, yeah. wonderful <laughs> filmmaker, you know, amazing movie. Most definitely. Well, all right, so, uh, Tim, what was your number five film? Man, my number five film, I saw it at Sundance uh, early this year, and I thought it was one of the best films at Sundance, and it didn't let me down for the rest of the year, and of course that film was Blind Spotting. What is this? Oh, oh, oh this. hey, hey, I, I would like to get out. Look at this! I'm better one in the glove, though. Yeah! I, guess I ain't trying to go back to jail. $200 Please let for me Collins. Out. Not Collins Gun. Very nice. Oh, I just got an Uber pickup. <laughs> you got it. Is this an Uber? Hell yeah. Tell him to slow down. No, you can't catch me. I'm on too fast on the gas. Don't chase me. Put him up like this, you guy. I'm a tough guy. I'm a tough guy. Do me a favor. I got three days left on this probation. When you got that gun on you, just don't tell me about it. Plausible deniability. Oh, do you mean this gun? Get out. <laughs> Good night, Colin. Uh, blind spotting, of course, stars David Diggs, along with his partner, Rasul Casal. And, uh, you know, it tells the story of a guy who is three days away from, from getting paroled. Uh, and he's had he's got a one year sentence and he's been on house arrest for a year and he's three days away and he witnesses a horrific act and he has an old dog as best friend played by Casal who's a white guy who has such a short temper and views that threatens to pull you know to, to, to endanger him seventy two hours away from his parole release and it's commentary is done in Oakland. Uh, it talks about gentrification. It talks about, you know, the, 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 the juxtaposition between African-Americans who may be large in size and how they're perceived versus, like, a non-African-American or a white.
white man who is really the, the nightmare or the stereotype that people think of us as. It, that film says a lot. I thought it was well executed. And ironically, a year prior, I ran into both Naveed Diggs and Raphael Fall at, at, uh, at the headquarters at Sundance, and they were polishing the script for the film that we're now talking about, which is blind spotting. So I reminded those guys of that story when I met them early this year. So blind spotting is a personal choice for me. I thought it was a fantastic film that was very well received. Uh, it just didn't get the distribution, I hope. And I have a couple of films on my list that didn't get made the distribution that were movies that I just thought were the real deal. And blind spotting was definitely one of those two. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate. I have not been able to see it yet. I've heard great things about it. Um, but, you know, you have a, a, a great endorsement of the film. Uh, so I look forward to seeing it because uh, it definitely does sound good. And as, as you said, David Diggs, uh, I, I've always enjoyed his work on Blackish. Um, so I, I definitely am interested in seeing that film. Yeah, man. So that, that movie, and then I, and one more thing I'll add, and there's one great scene in the film where, uh, you know, when we talk about, like, the, the uh, black-on-black crime or how the police are shooting down black men, he's running, you know, trying to, 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 to run to alleviate the stress, and he runs to a graveyard, and all the bodies of black men are standing. It's just a powerful, powerful representation. Black, a black spotting is an absolutely amazing film that as I said I saw it in January and still that movie resonates with me I highly uh, suggest they recommend people go check that film out wow yeah most definitely alright well we're moving on down the list right now uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go again now this one I have a <laughs> I have a feeling we might not see eye to eye on but again just in terms of how the film reson resonated with me um, I got to go with number four, Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. Now, this this is one in which I think people either loved the film or hated it, and I can totally understand why. I won't even say go as far as to say that I loved it, but it was the way in which it spoke to me. You know, it starts, it's in a alternate-type present-day version of Oakland, uh, and it stars, uh, what's my man's name, Lakeith Stanfield as a telemarketer, Cassius Green, who discovers a magical key to professional success, propelling him into a universe of greed. And I feel like as a black man, and we talk a lot uh, at times about code switching and that being that when we're you know out in the workplace or we're in front of white counterparts, we might speak one way. Versus when we're at home, we speak a totally different way. Um, and even, you know, I was listening to uh, um, The Treatment and Elvis Mitchell was talking with Mahershala Ali and he was talking about how his physicality changes, you know, whether he's out in the streets as a taller, dark-skinned black man versus when he's at home and how he brought that to, you know, his character in Green Book. And so code switching is something that really does happen in the black community, whether it's to make sure that you are not profiled or, you know, whether it's just helping to, other, helping to make other people feel comfortable. Unfortunately, that's something that happens. And I think that that's something that, sorry to bother you, 
really kind of makes a lot of great commentary on is <clears throat> basically Cassius, he uses a white voice when he gets on the phone. And, you know, this voice, it's obvious that it's not Lakeith Stanfield's voice. And so the film is so kind of crazy and fantastical that you're able to, you know, kind of absorb uh, the craziness. But at the same time, uh, I think Boots Riley is hitting you with a message about work and how we work and how the people that are excelling are excelling off of the backs of people that do not have as much. And so I just felt like personally for me, the film resonated in such a way, just talking about the American dream, the rat race, and uh, you know what that looks like for this brother in Oakland. That felt good the other day, right? Yes. It's good, man. It's like I've known y'all my whole life, you know? Don't forget that, okay? Remember each other's faces. Cassius? What's up, man? Where you been? What's up with the suit? I got promoted. What does that mean? Are you a manager now? That means I'm a power caller now. About to be paid. We're all trying to get paid. Yeah. But we're going to do it as a team. Are you on the team? Yeah, I guess I'm still on your little team, but I'm playing from the bench. The bench where you sit and get your bills paid. You know my uncle's about to lose his house. Cash, I'm sorry about your uncle, man, but that don't mean sell out. I'm not selling y'all out. My success has nothing to do with you, all right? You just keep doing whatever it is that you're doing, and I'll root for you from the sidelines. And I definitely feel as though he brought Oakland. You know, th there, are, <laughs> there are a lot of directors from the, from the Bay Area right now that are really bringing that flavor to the big screen, and I think that that's what we got with um, Sorry to Bother You. I think everything that's in the frame, Boots Riley, he purposefully put it there. And so there's a lot to absorb and a lot to talk about. It does kind of go left for me at a certain point in the movie, but I can, <laughs> I can excuse it for the fact that I get the overall vision of it. So my number four was Sorry to Bother You. Well, you know what, man? Um, I, I, I saw that movie three times, including seeing it at Sundance, but we had the what the hell look on our face the first time. Uh, I was pointing back the second time because I was blessed enough to be asked to moderate uh, a Q&A with Boots Riley. So I had an opportunity in the same day to interview Boots and then go home and then come back later on and sit down with Boots to moderate that AFI. And I'll tell you this much, man. I, I agree with you. It's not a movie that I love, love, but it's a movie that I really appreciate. And, and, I, and Boots Riley himself had to explain to me his third act. So now I respect the third act and I don't necessarily hate it, but mm. I understand visual representation of what he was trying to do and sorry to bother you. And it did not make my list either. <laughs> <laughs> I figured we would have a different a different list. But that's that's good though. That's good. Folks can uh, check out all these films. I think both the films that you pick are really good movies. Um, but you know, like I said, I started off by saying we had an embarrassment of riches. Uh, there are tons <laughs> of movies. I'd be on either of our lists, but, you know, they're all good films. But sorry to bother you, uh, Tessa Thompson is Detroit. Uh, Cassius Green's girlfriend, I thought she was great as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Tessa is just having a great uh, couple couple to three years. I mean, Annihilation, uh, I believe that was 2018, wasn't it? Or was it late 2017? It, that, that, yes, that was it. What did you say? 
No, I said annihilation was this year. That yeah, was this year. Yeah, and I think for me, annihilation really sealed it for me with Tessa Thompson because for the first time, you know, she came off of um, Valkyrie. Uh, with the MCU and uh, going into Annihilation where she literally had to kind of go inside herself for that character. And for the first time, she wasn't playing a character that's kind of larger than life. You know, you think Dear White People um, playing the Valkyrie. You know, she's like this big, bold character. And, um, yeah, the, the, the way she was able to shrink herself, to me, Tessa Thompson is definitely not to be slept on. I know at Middleburg, I, I don't even remember the name of the film. I just know that I went to see it because she was in it. Little Woods. <laughs> Little Woods, yes. Now, that, unfortunately, yeah, that was an art house, you know, film festival type film. Uh, I wouldn't be seeing it again, but you know she was solid in it for sure. She carried that film. I agree. I agree. Go My ahead. Was was Spike Lee's film Black Klansman? I'm going undercover in the Ku Klux Klan. Hello, this is David Duke, Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? That's right. What can I do you for? Since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans too. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. God bless white America. And uh, a little background on this film. Um, a, a good friend of mine named Kevin Wilmot, who directed TSA, Confederate States of America, as well as Destination Planet Negro, is Spike Lee's co-writer on the last two movies. So he... He co-wrote Chirac with Spike Lee, and he co-wrote Black Klansman. So I called him, and we talked when, you know, I saw it initially, and I told him that I thought the movie was good and I wanted it to be great. And he kind of explained to me that, you know, uh, the reason why Spike Lee beat you over the head with the messaging in Black Klansman is because he took a cue from uh, 45, the, the chief executive of our country, who's so over the top. Spike wanted Black Klansmen to be over the top. And over the top it is the story of the first African-American detective uh, and police officer in the Colorado Springs Police Department who goes undercover to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan locally, and then he meets David Duke. Um, you know, you got scenes in there with Harry Belafonte, the juxtaposition of power between white power, which is hateful, and black power, which is supportive. Uh, you've got so much good stuff going on in this movie. And I honestly believe that this movie, which received 11 nominations from us for uh, the Black Reel Awards, is going to probably be a major contender for an Oscar this year and might get Spike Lee his coveted Best Director uh, nomination. Black Klansman is really, really good, man. I mean, it's a movie that has grown over time for me That since I watched it. I really appreciate John David Washington's performance that much more and the storytelling of, of, of Ron Stallworth and his journey and what he got accomplished in that film. So I love Blind, I mean, a Black Klansman, man. So that's why I made number four on my list. Yeah, you know, uh, I have to go back. I haven't seen uh, Black Klansman in, in a while, and I feel like I need to give it a second look. 
I think the reason it didn't make my list at all is, you know, it, it definitely would make my top 10 of black films this year. Um, but it was that over the topness. Now, at the same time, you could probably laugh and say, okay, well, you just put Sorry to Bother You on the list. <laughs> you know, that was over the top. But I think there was something about it that just felt, um, it didn't ring totally true. Like you said, it, it was because it, I wanted to take it seriously. It's based off of a true story. And so it lost me in a, in a few um, a few of the scenes and a, a little bit of way that the character was handled. However, I will say, you know, definitely, like I said, it would be in my top 10. Um, definitely a memorable film. And I believe, honestly, for me, if memory serves me correct, I believe that uh, the last, you know, five minutes of the film left me in tears. Um, just the way that, you know, as you said, the messaging was brought home. And sometimes I, I do think that um, our directors have a responsibility, whether we want to sweep a message under the rug or not, um, to make sure that they put the message out in front of us. And basically, I think that the end of it, we see that the message is, hey, we got to love one another just as humans, as human beings. You know, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. And, um, you know, using the archival footage um, from Charlottesville, I think it was done in a powerful way, as, you know, only Spike can do. Um, so I definitely respect respect your choice on that one. It didn't make my list, but I can understand it for sure. All right, totally understand, bro. All right, bro, so uh, I'm going to kick it over to you, man. What's your number three? My number three movie, man, is from Barry Jenkins. It is it Beale Street Can Talk. Strumming my pain with his fingers. You ready for this? Singing my life with his words. I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. Killing me softly with his We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fonny's baby. <laughs> I hope it's a boy. We're gonna have a baby. I'll have you out of here before it is. You sure about that? You're not by yourself. These are our children, and we gotta set them free. Gotta hold our baby in my arms. I'm with you. You trusted love this far. I literally have only seen once. Uh, had a chance to talk to Barry Jenkins about the film. Um, story uh, of a love affair between uh, two young African Americans in the film. Their name Tish and and Fonnie. Tish being uh, newcomer Kiki Lane, and Fonnie being Stefan James, a Canadian actor, young brother that's really talented. And their love affair, and he is uh, of course. Uh, you know, charged unfairly and, and locked up. And her battle, uh, Fonny's battle, I mean, excuse me, Tish's battle to get Fonny exonerated, man. Um, the best thing about this movie, man, is, uh, is you know, or let me rephrase that when I say the best. Let's talk about something, a phrase I came up with and introduced called the Jenkins aesthetic, right, That of Barry Jenkins of what you look for or, or, or a common theme that runs throughout all of his films. Uh, and it's usually three attributes, right? Attribute number one, 
is that his films are always beautifully photographed, right? You know, you look at Medicine for Melancholy, you look at Moonlight, you look at this film, and they almost look like cinematic postcards, man, the way he shoots his actors. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography in Barry Jenkins' films. The second aesthetic that really runs throughout all of his films is usually themes of love or relationship. And you've seen that relationship in Moonlight. You see it in this film, in this love affair. You saw it in Medicine for Melancholy. And last but not least, uh, he always casts a, a group of usually some unknown actors, which I think makes those stories resonate even that much more because it feels like we're not watching actors. We're watching, like, real people. So when you look at Kiki Lane or you look at a lot of the actors that he introduced, and uh, Moonlight that people had not seen before, it draws people into his story. And this film, to me, is a slow burn that, uh, you know, we don't see a lot of this. You know, outside of maybe Love Jones, Aaron Loves, Angela, you don't see a lot of young uh, stories made in Hollywood about love affairs between African Americans. Uh, but, the, but the stealer of all scenes in this film is Regina King, who plays, uh, you know, uh, the mother in this film, the mother of um, Kiki Lane, who loves her daughter and will, uh, will go to the ends of the earth, and in this case to Puerto Rico, to try to, to make sure that her daughter's husband or her, her husband is going to be free. Regina King, man, is probably going to win the Oscar this year for Best Supporting Actress. She is absolutely fantastic in this film as is Coleman Domingo, who plays her husband, mm-hmm. Michael Beach in all yet memorable roles. Everybody brought their A-game in this, and I know you'll hear me say that over and over, <laughs> uh, that that takes for really effective films to work. And if Beale Street can talk, everything about this film really, really works. And uh, it's going to be another film that's going to probably be nominated for Best Picture this year. A really, really strong film, again, by Barry Jenkins. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Folks, it's Picture Lock. You've been listening to myself, Kevin Sampson, and founder of the Black Real Awards, Tim Gordon. We're going down our top five black films of 2018. We made it to the halfway point, and unfortunately, that's going to be the end of the show. But you can listen to our top five list on the podcast. Just head on over to iTunes, search for picture lock and uh it'll come right up hopefully uh you've already subscribed so you'll be able to hear the rest of it um but for those that are actually listening on the podcast we're gonna go ahead and continue uh you know tim if bill street could talk definitely made my list and it's actually my number two so i'm gonna go ahead and just put that out there i I think all the things that you said are exactly why it made it on my number two uh you know with Barry Jenkins, you talk about the Jenkins aesthetic, and uh, there is no secret that he is heavily influenced by Wong Kar Wai and uh, his films. He did like The Grand Master, uh, which came out in what, 2013? Um, and the cinematography that he kind of shows in his, uh, in his films, that aesthetic, is something that I think uh, Jenkins really, really relies on. So, so the cinematography is absolutely amazing. One of the things that I love, you know, not to piggyback of in, off anything that you said, because I think everything you said is exactly how I feel. 
Um, one of the things I really enjoyed was how his camera, he doesn't mind letting his camera just feel out uh, the frame, feel out, you know, the setting, what's going on. Like, I think about specifically a scene where the couple is actually going to get uh, an apartment and they're just imagining what it would look like. And the camera just kind of leaves the scene and the action where the characters are actually talking and kind of just explores the room. And for me, yeah. I felt like I was there because a lot of times, like, and I don't know how uh, how often, you know, you've gone to apartment hunting or house hunting. Sometimes, you know, the, the person that's doing, uh, the realtor who's talking with you, they're talking, but like you're off kind of searching and looking and imagining. And I feel like with his camera, there's different points within the film where he just kind of allows you as the viewer to kind of explore the scene, feel out the scene. And so there's a way, there's a certain way I think that um, Jenkins is also able to bring you, the viewer, kind of breaking that fourth wall without actually breaking it, but bringing you into um, what the characters are experiencing. Because I think when you leave that place, you feel as excited as they are that they got the place. And so it means so much when they're out in the street and they're celebrating. And then uh, on the flip side, you know, uh, once Fani goes to prison, uh, you feel, you know, just as disheartened as they do. So I think that, you know, as you said, that Jenkins aesthetic there's something there that he has that other people don't have. And so, yeah, that made my number two. I, I definitely would agree with you. Um, that is, is a powerful film. No, I agree, man. And, uh, you know, I love that movie a lot, man. I love Barry Jenkins, man. I've talked to him several times uh, since he's released movies, man. It's a really smart brother and love the stuff that he does, man. So. You want me to hit my number two right now? Let me let me hit my number three since I hit two, and and then we'll get to your number two. Um, for me, right. the number three uh, film was Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. You know, right. this is uh, where a teenager he's Miles Morales, and you know, <laughs> my friend Daniel Lee. Shout out to Daniel if you're listening to the podcast, brother. Uh, we we went back and forth kind of on, you know, how old we thought, uh, you know, Miles actually was. And so we figured he's about in, in ninth grade because one of the things, Miles is of mixed descent. So you can tell he's he's got, I think it's Puerto Rican and black. And, um, and so one, it, it was awesome to see, you know, uh, a cartoon or animated character that by all means just looks like a, a black kid on the big screen. And for me personally, I was a little bit disappointed in the fact that it wasn't more about Miles. We got some of, we, we definitely got some of his home life, but I felt like it was more of a training film in which Peter B. Parker was kind of training him. But that aside, from the animation, like honestly, the direction and the animation is what deserves high praise it deserves you know all the awards that you know it can it can get because i've never seen any animation like this um it felt as though you were looking at a comic book that had come to life uh some of the moves that you're able to do with the camera work and it just really feels like you're swinging with 
you know, whether it's <laughs> Peter B. Parker, Peter Porker, or, you know, Gwen Stacy, like all of them, um, I was just highly impressed. The colors, everything about that film, it just speaks to you in such a way that, you know, I think animation is not going to be be the same. Like this set a high bar. And so on top of that, like you actually have a really good storyline. I love how you see how each version of Spider-Man or Spider-Woman has lost someone in their life. And the way that uh, Miles Morales loses someone in his life uh, to me, that was like, whoa, like, you know, somebody really was thinking things through. And so the writing was great. The direction was great. The animation was great. I had a really good time with this film. And again, uh, it was one in which my wife and I were able to take our kids. Our kids were able to see themselves on the big screen. Um, you know, anytime you got Biggie in uh, <laughs> an animated movie, you know you're doing something big. So uh, for me, my number three was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, you, you failed to, rem uh, to, to remind audiences that that film was directed by Peter Ramsey, a black dude. Uh, so right. that's another the directors this year. Um, I agree with you. Uh, that movie finished right outside at my number six movie. Uh, on my list, but I agree with everything you said. Uh, you know, when you said that it's a comic book come to life, that's exactly what it is, man. Mm -hmm. uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is really, really special. Uh, just on the surface, man. Really love that movie. And I got to say, shout out to my man, Sanford Green. Uh, I doubt he's listening, but I know that he did some of the concept art um, for the film in Sanford, we actually had him at uh, this year's DC Black Film Festival. He came and he spoke to folks. Um, and you can actually really see kind of, if you know Sanford's art, you can see how uh, that influenced the way that Miles actually actually looks. So shout out to Sanford. But let's throw it over to you, brother. You're number two. And my number two film, man, is a movie that was 40 six years in the making, and I got a chance uh, up in New York to go and see it on the big screen. And that, of course, was amazing grace, man. Uh, this, this film, directed by Sidney Pollack, uh, was, the, was the video of the making of a... When the two days, or the two nights that she recorded the album, her first gospel album, Amazing Grace, back in 1972... And the backstory on what happened with the film is that there's something called the clapperboard that you're supposed to activate at the beginning of every scene in order to sync up the audio and the video. And director Sidney Pollack did not do that, which meant that after they finished filming the movie, the technology in order to pair those two elements together would not be created until 2003. And by that time, Aretha Franklin had moved on. So th this, this album, which became the highest-selling live gospel album in music history, uh, <laughs> this was like uh, kind of a peek into, into the creative proce process of Aretha Franklin, along with James Cleveland, as well as a couple of fans of a supergroup called the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts, who were in the house on both nights. Amazing Grace, man, finds Aretha Franklin at her absolute musical peak. Uh, she never sounded better. She never looked better. 
And, you know, I always tell people that Aretha Franklin's music and her hallmark was her making you feel her lyrics. And she, the, the, the glory of God is on display when you watch Amazing Grace. Uh, absolutely one of my, my favorite delights of 2018. And it finished on my list number two. You know, I I gotta say, uh, you know, us being friends, you told me about this film, and I know as a Black Real Awards, uh, you know, nominee, I wasn't able to to actually catch it because now I think that the, uh, you know, when I go to Vimeo, the link says Vimeo, uh uh-oh. So (laughs) I wanted to check it out just on your endorsement alone. It sounds like it is an amazing film, and you know, it's unfortunately that we lost Aretha this year. And at the same time, I think that it's so incredible that in the same year that we lose her, we get a piece of her through, as you said, the magic of uh, technology and uh, movie cinema now that we're able to actually see and experience that. So it's almost as though she left us a little something um, that is uh, definitely something to go and check out. Yeah, man. So I'm sorry that the link is not happening anymore because, you know, I was just watching it probably about two weeks ago, man. Okay. What a movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Um, All right, man. Well, Tim, this brings us to our number one film of 2018. I, I, I have a feeling that we might possibly have the same movie in the number one slot. Um, yeah, I, I would assume so, yes. <laughs> all right, all right, let's see if we can do this. Uh, I'm going to count down three, two, one, and then we'll just say it out loud. Ready? Three, two, one. Black Panther. Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, well, I'm going to give you the honors of going first and, and explaining why this made your number one. Man, Black Panther is, is very easy to explain, man. I remember, and, and in order to explain it, let, we have to go back nine months to Comic-Con 2017. And they roll out the cast of Black Panther, and, and as they do at every Comic-Con, there's usually like some sort of a clip or trailer that is played. And, of course, uh, I wasn't in the room, but I, another colleague, a friend of ours, Travis Hobson, was there, and he talked about how people were crying and how good it was that people were just overwhelmed. And then something magical happened after that. That as it as it happens in every Comic Con, usually when clips are shown within hours, they show up online. And for some strange, the Black Panther clip never surfaced. Right. So what happened at that moment, and it built all the way to opening night nine months later, was that there was this mystique that was created around this film. Right. So they were already mystique when they announced they were making it then they introduced the cast and then they showed the clip and then Pete built up this insatiable appetite because they had heard all these things about this movie and then all of a sudden when Black Panther hit it hit like a cinematic A-bomb in 2018 this movie outperformed every metric you know people were saying 150 to 175 mm-hmm. then within a day it went from 175 to 200 and then it went from 200 <laughs> to 200 and then two said so so I remember that. Yeah. Black Panther just hit like a bomb and it became the movie much like Get Out was the year pre- previous mm-hmm. that on that at every cocktail party. People were like, 
did you see Black Panther? Wakanda forever. And <laughs> right. the movie that, you know, the, the, the reason why I think it resonated is the way it did, Kevin, is because for years we always talk about black people descending from kings and queens. And here was a movie that showed you the visual representation of that. Uh, you know, Wakanda is this, this fictional land that has got the most technology on the planet, the most resources. You know, T'Challa uh, is Prince. I mean, King T'Challa is the richest of all the Marvel superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we have this beautiful African country. Ruthie Carter creates these amazing fashions. You've got this diverse cast of African Americans, Africans. It, it was just a dream come true. And the fact that Ryan Coogler took a story, and I never forget because Ava DuVernay was offered this this film. And I remember her saying, I turned it down because I wanted to put my own personal stamp on it, and they wouldn't let me. Man, I don't know what Ryan Coogler did when he came in it, but it really felt like he put some Oakland on it. (laughs) Right. With blind spotting and sorry to bother you, the Bay is in the house again with Black Panther. Um, I'm done, man. Black Panther, there's nothing that should be said about this film. Every, Every superlative, every accolade. This movie was nominated for 17 Black Real Awards. <laughs> Good God. Yeah. So that shows you how, how highly regarded Black Panther was, man, as a film. Yeah, you know, uh, so, you know, you have your backstory on the film. And my, my backstory is, you know, I saw this in the theater three times. I've probably seen it another three times. Uh, at home, you know, we, we got it on Blu-ray because we had to go ahead and support. Um, it, it's on Netflix. So, you know, I pop it on with the kids and every time like I can watch it and go, no, no 1.5 viewing or fast forwarding it. You know, like I can sit down and watch this film again and again and again. But the first time that I saw it, as you know, Tim, because you can testify to the people, the first act I was in tears uh, through the whole thing. And I said, okay, Kevin, you got to get it together if you're going to do a review on this thing. Um, But it spoke to me on so many different levels. And I think one of the themes that throughout the film, they really kind of um, push forward is who are you? And we know that as black folks, you know, making that journey uh, across the pond, as they say, forced upon us, a lot of our history was lost, and so we don't have that connection uh, to Africa or even our personal family genealogy. Um, and so throughout the entire film, the part that really got me crying in the first act was when uh, Angela Bassett's character had said, you know, uh, tell him who you are, show him who you are. And the way that she just, it was a guttural, you know, mother to son, like, messaging Man, that had me in tears because I, I, you know, I felt that love for my mother. I knew in that moment it was like time for him to show up, and I, I just feel as though uh, the the community that the the world that they created it just reigned really true to um, black folks, African Americans, and I think even as we both have talked to Ruthie Carter, just in terms of um, with the costuming, how she went to Africa. 
and you know looked at the different designs from different tribes and then infused that into uh, the production i mean i think it was just uh, an amazing film and then it was just a great story you know uh, i think everyone kind of has to go through hopefully if you've known your father you go through that uh, point in life in which you step out and you become your your own you become yourself and I think that's what we saw within this story is, you know, uh, T'Challa becoming king and really kind of starting to chart his own path. But the beautiful thing is that, you know, they're able to go to the spirit plane and be able to actually have a conversation with those that have gone on before. And so I think the way that they did that with uh, T'Challa, T'Challa's character, as well as Eric Killmonger, um, was really impressive. And on top of that, like, in terms of a villain, come on now, Eric Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan, that was a very memorable role, and I think mainly because, in some ways, you want to root for him. Right, and you know, and it's funny you would say that, man. The two things that jump out, man, uh, after listening to you, uh, there's a line in the film that uh, after he goes, I guess, and accepts the power of the Black Panther, and he goes has this kind of dreamlike state, and he sees his father in the uh, in the land beyond. And his father says, "You're a good man, and it's hard for a good man to be king." That's number one. Number two is, you know, when you talk about Michael B. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan probably for me is the second best antagonist or villain in a comic book space, probably since Heath Ledger 10 years ago mm-hmm. as the Joker in the Dark Knight, man. That character, the way Ryan Coogler and, and, and John Robert Cole fleshed that out, you're absolutely right, man. I mean, it, to me, it, I don't even call it a villain. I call it like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, man. Right. They both want the same thing, but they both have different philosophies on how they want to get there. And I think uh, Michael B. Jordan's role and how he played Killmonger, it, that to me, I think, is really the strength of the film because in, in the essence of his messaging, which actually, which is ironic because toward the end of the film, uh, T'Challa comes around to a certain degree to what Killmonger was, was fighting for. Um, I think that's at the crux of what makes Black Panther the, the film that it is. It's just not quote-unquote, you know, comic book pulp, it elevated that film to kind of like high art, high cinematic art, uh, which is why Black Panther, I think, was able to speak to so many different people, African-Americans, people across the continent, folks who were non-African-American. People really responded to that film's message in a major, major way. Yeah, most definitely, man. And and on top of that, I think we just got some great performances. Denai Guerrera, I mean... Uh, that she she played that role to a T, and uh, so it was great. Then later launching into Infinity War, seeing them again, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, uh, I think Daniel Kaluuya, uh, seeing him in Widows, you know, like you're you're seeing a lot of different. African-American actors uh, or African actors, I should say, or people of African descent, because a lot of them are Brits. But uh, Letitia Wright, um, you know, we're seeing just this explosion of uh, it's 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 not where have you been, because I think 
you know, Tim, as you know, with the Black Real Awards and me, part of the reason I started DC Black Film Festival is because we've been out here and, um, but we just haven't been able to get the exposure. Um, and so I think right. that film really had some of our, you know, top actors working right now. Winston Duke, I can't wait to see him in Us. That thing looks extremely scary. But uh, even Winston Duke, I mean, he had some of the funniest lines in Black Panther with M'Baku. And, um, you know, just being able to be, I think a lot of times in this film, people were a pillar of strength. Yet at the same time, you could see their humanity uh, shining through um, and that they didn't take themselves so seriously at, at, at certain points in the film. So, yeah, number one was definitely Black Panther. What an amazing film and what an amazing year we have for black cinema in 2018. Yeah, we actually did have an amazing year in black film this year. And uh, it's interesting that we would have the same number one, man. Yeah, that yeah. wasn't even that wasn't even uh, by accident. I mean, what else was going to be number one this year? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, uh, Tim. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to seeing you pretty soon here at Sundance this year. But if you could, for those that are listening, how can folks see your work, uh, listen to you on the radio? Well, man, you, of course, you can listen to my show. Uh, it airs on D.C. radio every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, and it's called Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. Um, you can also follow me everywhere at Film Gordon, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. <laughs> <laughs> and, Tim, uh, before I let you go, when will we hear the winners from the Black Reel Awards? Uh, Thursday, February the 7th, man. So, you know, uh, as I explained to you, uh, it's going to be a historic night, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a historic night. Black Panther, 17 nominations, Black Klansman, four, I mean, 11, and if Beale Street can talk, 14. Uh, so it, it, we look for fireworks on February the 7th, man. It's going to be a special, <laughs> special night, man. I love it. Tim Gordon, founder of the Black Reel Awards. Thanks again for coming on the show and counting these top five black films of 2018 down with me. All right, man. I appreciate that, man. Always glad. Whenever, whenever called, glad to show up, man. <laughs> All right. Before we get out of here, guys, picture lot question of the week this week. What's your most anticipated film of 2019? Call 202-350-1351 and leave a 60-second or less voicemail or leave a comment via PictureLock social media, and I'll play or read it on next week's show. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guest Tim Gordon for coming on the show and joining me in celebration. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast so you can catch those unlocked versions of the show as well as the Picture Lock PR after show. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say Alexa, play Picture Lock podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. You're supporting the filmmakers that I have on the show by allowing more people to be exposed to the podcast. It's quick, it's easy, and free and I'll be your best friend after it. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe. 
If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out a form on the website. All music is done by Mike S. The Producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media. Mike S. The Producer numeral one, numeral three, and hit him up for your music production needs. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.